for some reason a big city is is worse because you know that's where contagion happens but actually a big city is more resilient and has proven itself to the point that's why you invest in resilient fit cities Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, another code cracker. We're going to dig into what we have learned thus far as property investors from the pandemic and investing through Corona economics. I'll tell you what, I think there are such valuable lessons that we as property investors can learn in this live experiment which is the pandemic and investing through it. I think property investors really have seen firsthand some of the best examples of lessons in real estate. And I want to highlight them today in this episode. I want you to walk away from this episode really understanding that real estate certainly can make you wealthy, but it can also mess with you if you mess it up. And I think coronavirus has taught us in real time, our, all at once, what can happen when real estate markets transform and really what will happen if we don't take advantage of some of the lessons which are in front of us. Welcome aboard if it's your first time tuning into the show. The Urban Property Investor is all about lessons on real estate. So feel free to jump around, check out other podcasts that I've done. If talking more about the pandemic absolutely makes you feel sick to the stomach, then perhaps go to a alternative podcast I've done. I tell you what, though, it does feel like we live in the twilight zone a bit, doesn't it? Uh, I certainly often feel like, wow, where is the time going? I uh, certainly am stuck in lockdowns and as such, uh, it does meddle with your mindset a tad. It certainly meddled with Raffi, my dog. He is now an alcoholic. I had no idea dogs could drink beer, but Raffi is a beer-drinking Gopnik dog. Who would have thought? Uh, yes, we picked Raffi up uh, as a older dog, and I had no idea that uh, dogs drank beer. My, certainly, my previous dog never had an alcoholic fetish, but uh, yes, it is not uncommon to see in my lockdown house on the weekend when uh, it's party night, Raffi smashing beer. Now, if you're the RSPCA listening, I can assure you I don't promote this. This is just what he ends up doing. And um, it's, uh, it's quite funny watching an alcoholic dog sitting on a couch sleeping after smashing a schooner. Hey, I tell you what, uh, we are going to learn some lessons today and I am pumped to bring you the show. I got my lot, little coffee. Uh, I'm doing today's program early in the morning, which is not normal for me. In fact, uh, I feel a bit bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. So what do we learn through the last sort of 12, 14, 15 months of investment? Obviously, coronavirus kind of hit Australia in, what was it, 
February 2020, uh, we kind of first, you know, understood that this pandemic was real. We'd heard stories about it floating around, uh, coming out of obviously Wuhan, and uh, we we at first probably didn't, you know, think too much about it. But it came as a bit of a shock when certainly ScoMo got up there and said, hey, we're closing the borders. This thing's pretty real. Uh, we obviously even had, you know, our own cruise ship at the time. I think it was the Ruby Princess or something along those lines, which, uh, you know, people were getting this thing called the virus. And we were like, well, what is going on? I actually met a lady off the Ruby Princess who got coronavirus. She uh, she described herself as a um, as a survivor of the Ruby Princess. I met her on a mudgy wine drinking tour and she explained all about coronavirus to me, that it was a pretty horrible disease and that I definitely would not want to catch it. Have you guys got friends or family or people overseas who've caught it? I certainly have. Uh, my cousin Gypsy, who plays Vegas as a performer, she's uh, got the big C. Got our mate Scotty, who's um, who's about fifty, and he he lives and works in America. Uh, comes back to Australia. He's done about six quarantines. The old Scotty Harris, uh, you may know him. He's a uh, pretty well known person when it comes to you know, helping people with their mindset and so forth. He's got it. Uh, he said it was terrible. You would not want your folks to to get it. Um, you need to be pretty fit if you're going to get the coronavirus. He, he's a pretty fit fellow. He said it was pretty tough. Uh, certainly, uh, my missus family has been affected by the big C. Um, her cousin, Olga, has had the the big C and still can't. To this day, I think about nine months later, she can't bloody smell anything. Uh, so that doesn't sound too too much fun, does it? But certainly, I think you know what we have witnessed during coronavirus is a fragmentation in really society. You know, the beliefs of people in society are, are certainly getting tested, and particularly get tested as lockdowns unfold. And I think what we have learnt from a property investment point of view inside of society is is certainly how fragmented society can be at times, particularly around uh, lockdowns, beliefs, the way to handle the pandemic. And really the underlying uncertainty for many people is still a challenge to this day. And it really is almost in some respects creating a society where some people are just completely non-affected by coronavirus and other people absolutely devastated by it. But in the middle, there's this thing called property investing. And uh, certainly over the last 12 months, property has been a bit of a magnet. Obviously, money is worthless in the bank. Real estate has taken off in a direction which is incredible. And as such, we've just seen such uh, a great uh, generational boom, which has has really helped a lot of people get ahead. And really, the first lesson I think we can identify off the back of coronavirus and pandemic investing thus far is 
the first thing we need to understand is the wealth effect. And when there are downturns, there is this incredible situation which unfolds in the Western world. And it really is known as the wealth effect. The idea that if governments can help stimulate activity by pouring money into the economy, it inflates the value of assets. And those people holding assets get rewarded. And almost people who do not take the risk of owning assets don't. And so what happens is we have seen the inflation of real estate, the inflation of the share market, and certainly a lot of people have become very, very wealthy off the back of those two asset classes expanding in value. And what happens is the wealth effect is something you want to catch. You want to be in the market for when it comes. You never know when it's going to come, but when it does come, it is spectacular for your wealth creation journey. And it uh, really is something which, again, a lot of people probably uh, chose not to participate in. I know people who you know, sold their shares, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of shares. There were retirement savings in the share market as the share market hit its lowest uh, period instead of actually doing the polar opposite, potentially buying more shares. Uh, you know, the real estate market probably didn't have the uh, trough that certainly the share market did early in sort of 2020, what was it, March 2020, the share market tanked. Uh, the real estate market didn't do that. And there's a couple of reasons why it didn't do that. Namely, the supply and demand metrics. When we went into this pandemic, Australia was really undersupplied of stock at the time. Uh, there were some shortages going around and the shortages have just got worse and worse and worse. We're critically undersupplied now, which is really going to safeguard the real estate market. I think there's two things that really are safeguarding the real estate market today. One is the cost of money, the cash rate, ridiculously low. What people are paying for money, ridiculously low when it comes to real estate and the history of real estate. And certainly, I think the supply level of stock, they're just, it has been eradicated. And when I say eradicated, really, we are now seeing uh, many people designing and building homes to live in, but having to wait two years for that stock to even arrive. And they, they are homeowners, not investors. So we are at an all-time low for stock. I know certainly in my job, finding a-grade real estate for investors to buy is becoming more difficult. And really, the fact I've been doing this 30 years now has, uh, has certainly come back to help me help them because really, um, I guess my expertise in, you know, finding real estate is coming to the, uh, you know, surface. But Lesson, I guess, number one is you want to catch these wealth effects when they pop up because they are spectacular. Non-risk takers get burnt when the wealth effect transpires. Once again, the wealth effects is just simple. If you pump asset values, people spend money because they feel safe, because they feel wealthier. The velocity of that money then connects to other people in society. It moves quickly. 
that money, uh, if if more people feel like their assets are performing, then that velocity of spending that money increases and therefore we have almost like a goods and services boom and that's really what has been unfolding off the back of uh, the lessons of coronavirus. So despite lockdowns, really a lot of industries are booming and we actually have learned that we want to be on the good side of disruption when it comes to pandemics, when it comes to this decade. We are living in a decade of complete disruption, whether that's going to be technology disruption, uh, demographic disruption, whether that's going to be things like living with contagion. So it's fair to say the second lesson from uh, the year thus far, investing through contagions, is we want to be really in the right industry. And I think for a lot of people, uh, sadly, and and really this is not really something they could have ever planned for, they are in the wrong industry today. Uh, hospitality, tourism, uh, aviation, very challenged industries and really people inside those industries today are really having a bit of a wake-up call that potentially they need to go and reskill to get into the knowledge-based economy, which I've talked about for a very, very long time, to live a disruptive, free life. And uh, the real challenge is not even the fact that there's this stop-start effect of those industries with work because we know the government steps in and kind of cash flows people. It could be better, but they're still getting cash flow. But it's the time sitting out of the asset market, which is the real uh, wealth divide for many industries. So we're seeing certain industries where jobs and disruption is not a thing. Those people are making very good money, not being disrupted by coronavirus through lockdowns and have been able to invest in assets which have made them even more money. So I think the second uh, lesson, if we're up to lesson two, I'm pretty sure we're up to lesson two, is we're going to make wealth happen in our lives and we're going to do that primarily through what we do as a job. Our job, if at all possible, being connected to the smart economy or the knowledge economy is absolutely going to serve us better. Certainly, as we know, there are skill sets in Australia um, and we want to, if we can at all possible, choose skill sets which are going to go through the least level of disruption whether that's the construction industry because it'll be booming, whether that's the knowledge economy. But I do think one of the challenges, many people connected through to, for example, hospitality and tourism are going to continue to suffer because let's face it, even when the borders open, will the Chinese tourists feel safe to come back to Australia? Will they be flocking into our regional communities to do a little tour of uh, I don't know, the Great Barrier Reef or whatever it may be, will we see world tourism reflow the way it is or will people feel a little bit stuck uh, in the context that maybe, uh, you know, they don't feel as welcome as they potentially should or they feel like maybe travelling is, you know, what if there was a new variant of coronavirus, etc. So I think... We're going to get back to a normal state one day, but it's certainly 
no, uh, there certainly is no end date to this. And I think, again, the big lesson is get in the right industry, which does not face as much disruption or invest in real estate where there is a high level of skill in that local suburb or that economy so it does not get affected by the lingering aftermath of coronavirus. We've learned that. We've learned the power of choosing really smart economics when it comes to property investing. Now, on that note, I think I've put out a podcast recently about, you know, how to get long-term capital growth. Uh, I think the podcast is, I might just have a look at it. Uh, What is it? Podcast 57. Uh, That talks about really the third lesson of coronavirus. We want to invest in resilient cities, really mission fit cities. And that podcast talks about the idea that we have learned something, that mission fit cities are capable of weathering the storm. For example, our most mission fit city today when it comes to the future megatrends and economic maneuvers the future economy has is Melbourne. It scores like an 82 as a mission fit city. Uh, The most mission fit city in the world, by the way, is Singapore at an 85. The fact that Melbourne has had six lockdowns, uh, it is, you know, been basically people have stayed inside for six months and it is still going, just proves to me that property investment is safer in bigger economies. The fact that Melbourne has bucket loads of different industries and it is still going through what is arguably the most horrendous lockdown in Australia is incredible. And it really does show, and the lesson is, and the third big lesson here, I think we're at the third, is we want resilient cities to invest in. Now, let's assume a smaller city went through a lockdown of that size. That would have been absolutely devastating for that marketplace. Let's take a, I don't know, a place like Cairns, where there's really only one industry being tourism. If Cairns went into a six-month lockdown or six lockdowns, and it didn't, thankfully, but it probably would struggle to exist, let's face it. And what that means to your property investment is would it would have been a nightmare, let's face it. It would have been an absolute nightmare. So I think the fact we can learn that uh, safe economies are fundamentally a mixture of various industries. And if you look at, for example, you know, the Sydney lockdown, you know, 50% of industries are struggling, 50% are booming. The boom kind of helps the struggle. Uh, The fact that 50% of industries are booming, those people are still spending the velocity of money that is being spent is kind of helping prop up uh, the overall economy. Think of it that way. Now, if we went to a deflationary economy today, uh, in other words, where people are afraid to spend and that money went into lockdown, geez, that that would be a tough marketplace to own real estate in. So I think we've learned that 
And, and this is the third lesson. You should write this down. Invest in diverse economies. Do not invest in smaller economies where you're basically being uh, lured in without factoring in downturns because when downturns hit those marketplaces, they can absolutely not survive. And I've seen it before in the GFC, certain marketplaces which at the time were really uh, single industry focused got smashed. You know, a lot of people don't talk about this, but after the GFC, the global financial crisis in 2008, I mean, the Gold Coast dropped in value like 40%. One of the biggest challenges with the Gold Coast at the time was it was very single industry focused. It uh, has done a lot since then. It learned a lot actually about inviting uh, other industries into its economy, creating international airports. It, it, it rebuilt itself. And today the impact on the Gold Coast is far less. Uh, in fact, it's been booming because you know, particularly that southern Gold Coast part, Burley Heads to Byron, has been a bit of a hotspot for migration. So, um, you know, the, the point is, if an economy is not mission fit for a six-month lockdown, would you really want to put your money there? And that's what we have to understand. And we've kind of had this kind of viewpoint, which is a bit perverted in my view, that you know, so for some reason, a big city is is worse because, you know, that's where contagion happens. But actually, a big city is more resilient and has proven itself to the point that's why you invest in resilient fit cities. Uh, we have not seen a smaller 40,000 township go into a six-month lockdown. What happens if we do? Because there is no finishing point to coronavirus. It will continue to bug us for quite a while. And I often think, you know, I guess the consumer of today is probably, you know, much younger than than people who uh, have experienced this stuff. And certainly, you know, I love learning from my elders. My, my number one, I'm the, look, I'm a fan of my dad. He's lessons to me are amazing. I mean, he explains to me that, you know, in his, uh, you know, he grew up just basically as World War II uh, began in, he was born in 1939 and uh, he lived through polio. He lived through uh, tuberculosis. And that was a big thing in society when he was a, he was a kid. Polio is a terrible disease. It basically waterborne disease, cripple your limbs. Um, I remember growing up, watching a television show called uh, I Can Jump Puddles, which was about a kid with polio who basically was trying to walk again. Um, tuberculosis was a big thing in uh, as he was a, a child. You know, he would say that, uh, you know, people would be taken away to hospital never to be seen again. It, you know, it was a thing in society unless – uh, and obviously vaccines have come along to remove them from – you know, daily lives of people. But, I mean, tuberculosis sounds like a terrible one and fucking, you know, burns your lungs. A little bit like coronavirus. It basically airborne disease, which just smashes you. I mean, I'm glad I'm not living through that period. So the point is, like, tuberculosis and polio is still out there. It's just 
managed and COVID will be out there, but hopefully through, um, you know, I guess a worldwide herd immunity, maybe driven off the back of vaccines or whatever, you uh, will be able to, to live in a more normal world. So the third thing we've learned is you've got to invest in resilient areas and uh, the untested, non-resilient, non-diverse industry cities, I don't know how they're going to fare when their turn comes to this thing called Corona. I certainly would not want my money in those marketplaces. I think the fourth thing we've learned from uh, coronavirus is without question that we as uh consumers in the real estate market are absolutely looking for the humanistic experience around real estate. Today, that spatial distribution, the spatial change of real estate is a real thing. And what has fundamentally happened through the pandemic thus far is that upgrader market has really wanted better real estate, the better stock, the better suburbs, the 20-minute neighbourhoods, uh, the neighbourhoods with a humanistic experience where, you know, you're close to the beach or you're close to the cafes. Um, and all of a sudden, we've seen this kind of absolutely differential between A-grade capital growth and D-grade capital growth. There's almost like a two-speed market that we've learnt from coronavirus. And again, this is why we want to invest in really good assets because their speed of growth is just superior. But also, will when the downturn or when the market begins to stagnate after every expansion comes a contraction, that's pretty normal. Um, if we're going to build wealth from assets, we're going to potentially recycle equity from assets. And this is what tends to happen when these bullish markets come along, people either buy A-grade assets or D-grade assets. They buy good locations or, you know, weirdo locations. Then uh, because of the wealth effect, everyone's made money. So for a lot of property investors, they then try and create or tap equity from their investments. So uh, as you can imagine, that means they have to borrow more money. And then as the market adjusts, a period of stagnation comes along, a contraction uh, eventually hits, a lot of people take equity out of degrade assets or degrade lo locations. And of course, when the market adjusts, basically they go negative equity on their degrade asset and start hating life because they've acquired something which even to offload is going to be a financial misery in their world. And again, what that then does is they almost get this kind of, they get lured in, if you like, to taking the equity out of the degrade asset. Then their serviceability all gets messed up and all of a sudden, they are time-bound and stuck with a blunderish property for quite a long time. And basically, the alternative, of course, is those two-speed markets, the A-grade asset ends up 
absolutely outperforming. And when you take uh, take the equity out of it, even though it's probably going through the same downturn, the uh, risk of holding that asset for the longer term or the medium term or the risk of holding that asset and watching it you know, fast correct again is a lot less. It's just because more people want the better real estate and that's just the way it works. More people want the better neighborhoods. That's just the way real estate works, particularly as we find ourselves in a low rate environment. So a lot of people, uh, I think that the next lesson we're learning from coronavirus is really there were two types of consumers inside of coronavirus. People who went for the live, work, play, 20-minute neighbourhood, humanistic, mission-fit cities, which uh, will get growth, probably tap equity, but also sleep at night because they're in the right neighbourhoods to own real estate. Then there were people who, I guess, followed the fear of missing out, uh, followed the affordability chain, went to sub-regional communities, uh, para-urban communities and basically bought real estate have done well because of the wealth effect and are tapping equity on something that will probably end up going very negative equity on them from the equity they tap. And of course, then they'll have this realization, why am I servicing debt on a degrade asset when the market is probably not going to move for quite some time? That becomes a bit of a problem for many people. So I think the real uh, next lesson we've learned is we want these A-grade assets no matter what the market is, no matter what the market's doing. We need to factor in, we want to buy real estate for our retirement. We don't want to just buy real estate because it feels good today. Uh, blunder stock is not going to be what you want to hold in your retirement. That's that's where we're at with the real estate marketplace. I think uh, the next thing we've learned from real estate is certainly the marketplace has been led thus far through the pandemic by home buyers, not investors, and home buyers upsizing, home buyers upgrading, home buyers finding new humanistic suburbs. Really, what we have seen, if you like, is two distinct groups, the millennials making moves into the real estate marketplace, whether they're family millennials looking for a home or whether they're um, loner liver millennials looking for a property. Both uh, the millennial marketplace, that sort of 30 to 40-year-old group, is has been shopping left, right, and center. And a lot of that has been driven off the back of, again, friendly grants helping people into the marketplace. And I guess what has certainly surprised me is I think about 121,000 grants were given out over you know the, the, the period of the building boost. And that certainly has, has absorbed a lot of stock in the marketplace and really been taken up by millennials. And as such, millennials are really getting their first taste of the real estate marketplace. Um, some, uh, I guess, economists call them cannon fodder. 
uh, because they've sort of, a lot of them have bought in really D, uh, C and D grade locations when it comes to real estate to get the boost. Probably what surprised me was certainly uh, just how many people needed a $25,000 boost to buy a property. Uh, that in itself really does highlight, you know, the inequality in the market. The fact that millennials today did not have savings to get into the market and needed to be uh, baited into the market using grants was a bit of a surprise to me just how many people went for it. But certainly, look, it uh, was many people's ability for the first time in their life to get into the real estate market. And certainly if there's a long-term viewpoint to that real estate, I'm sure uh, a lot of those millennials will do will do well. And certainly that I don't think they've bought their dream home, but they've got a footprint into the market. And it does show to me the great Australian dream is alive. People do want real estate. And I know a lot of the conversation around real estate is quite often this conversation that, you know, real estate has reached its zenith. The affordability of real estate has reached its zenith in the country. I think the millennials prove that absolutely wrong. There is a marketplace for real estate and there will continue to be a marketplace for real estate. And millennials have the ability to move to places and are agile and will transfer to different cities to live in if it means they can be homeowners. And I think that's a really encouraging sign. And for me, a big lesson of Corona economics and the pandemic thus far. Uh, Certainly, the other surprise to me was the pre-downsizer marketplace. What we've seen left, right and centre across uh, certainly many of the A-grade areas of Australia is just how many downsizers are now buying probably 10 years before they actually downsize. And I think taking advantage of the low rates, perhaps those final years being in the workforce and uh, throwing money at somewhere they potentially want to live 10 years from now has been an amazing revelation to me. And it certainly has uh, seen a lot of the downsizer sort of uh, baby boomer market, if you like, absorb some of the better real estate in the economy. And uh, and that has been one of the most amazing things and lessons for me is when you anchor real estate across very, very low rates and uh, you give everyone an opportunity to borrow at a very, very low rate, the the manoeuvre of money, money going into the better real estate areas has been incredible. And baby boomers aren't stupid. They've been around a few cycles. They've seen real estate grow uh, exponentially from the years they first got into the market back in the 70s. And as such, I think what their experience is showing is that when these wealth effects come along, you take your money out of the bank where it's worthless and you buy A-grade assets. And of course, a lot of some of the the big capital growth surging in these A-grade areas is because people are pre-buying their downsizer. They're pre-buying where they're shifting to. They're not selling their asset now. They're buying another asset and holding onto it until that maneuver comes. And I think uh, certainly that 
is one of the most interesting things I've learned through this pandemic. I certainly think we have seen the split of the middle class. You have lived through the split of the middle class. And again, I think, you know, quite often there's just, yeah, it is tough out there for people today. And certainly if you're on the wrong side of economics at the moment, you got four kids, your industry's just, you know, gone into lockdown, you're um, getting 750 bucks from ScoMo. I mean, you're basically going, this is ridiculous. Like, and, and this is, you know, a lot of people who are protesting and, and getting out there and, you know, arguably, um, you know, causing civil unrest or whatever it is. I mean, a lot of these people are like, this is fucked, man. I, I like, I've got to work. I've got to work. It's like the lesser of two evils, the pandemic or work. And, and I absolutely feel for many people in that situation. I've met people in that situation. Um, I've got friends in that situation and, and you absolutely see their point of view where it's like, well, um, economically, like they're, they're ruined and the mental health on them is just, you know, disastrous. And, um, you know, being put in a situation like that is now a, a split in the middle class. And again, I think we can learn that if we're going to be property investors, we need to do a bit of a look into the affluent score of a neighborhood because today the biggest economies, uh, biggest companies in the world are generally tech companies. They're smart, innovative companies. And there is a correlation between the professional workforce and of course, um, the affluent score of a neighborhood. And obviously what that translates into is uh, tenants who are also quite affluent and can pay more rent. And I think really what we have learned through coronavirus is we probably are absolutely seeing this split in the middle class. We're seeing it at a social level. We're seeing it certainly at... Um, you know, an opinion-based level. Uh, certainly, if you, you know, look at Facebook, there's, you know, anti-vaxxers, there's vaxxers, there's anarchists, there's, you know, people just, you know, trying to follow government guidelines. And, and a lot of it behind the scenes is people's identity is being absolutely smashed apart. And a lot of people uh, are certainly on the wrong side of the tracks when it comes to how coronavirus has treated them. No fault of their own. I am, and it's not a judgment and I'm not uh, certainly trying to, to point out, you know, that, you know, uh, there is a class differential occurring. All I am saying to you as a property investor, you've learned the lesson. You've seen it. You're seeing it on TV. Make a smart decision. Buy in areas where there's going to be a decent level of tenant, not in a marketplace where really there is struggle street. And struggle street and property investment into the future is going to be very, very different. After this boom, remember... Capital growth is going to be very niche, very niche. We're entering a niche capital growth marketplace. Uh, sure, the boom's happened. Great. 
Then we go into a niche localized level where there is growth. And again, it's it's obvious that um, we want to stick to where the speed of, of wage growth and professional growth is much higher. So uh, we've certainly seen, I guess, the certainly the impact of the split of the middle class. And I think, again, a lot of that is now time-bound. So what has happened is the more, I guess, lucky part of the middle class has, with assets, is now moving in a completely different direction to the part of the middle class which has no assets. And the time of this boom is is again splitting the uh, the marketplace in two. And inequality is a real thing. It's a mega trend worldwide. I've discussed that before, but we've probably learned from the pandemic thus far that we want to invest on the right side of that mega trend and certainly follow the good marketplaces where you know wages are growing and those jobs are in demand and the society is transforming, right? Uh, I certainly think what we also have seen is that banks have a vested interest in real estate. Let's face it, banks are the biggest investor in property. Uh, we just borrow the money and you know, almost like are the captain of the ship. But really, for a lot of people in the marketplace, the uh, debt is really the bank's debt. We're just paying or renting the debt, if you like. And as such, when the downturn hit, the most interesting thing for me was certainly uh, the ability of the banks to step in and save the marketplace. Let's face it, if there was no thing, no such thing as mortgage relief or being able to park your mortgage or put it on pause, a lot of the marketplace would have been dumping stock. That wouldn't have been good for the market at all. The fact that our big banks stepped in, kudos to them, but certainly they are invested with us. And I think that is one of the biggest lessons of coronavirus, just how big real estate is as a rock in the economy, so big that our leading banking institutions step in when things got really tough and certainly, um, you know, uh, because of the unusual nature of this sort of pandemic itself, they um, kept the marketplace moving and, and certainly made it a lot easier for us property investors. I know personally, I put all my mortgages on pause. As soon as I heard that there was an opportunity to not pay debt and to not pay mortgages and to cash up and to recapitalize my portfolio, I threw them all on pause. I was about making hundreds of thousands of dollars from not paying a mortgage. And uh, that recapitalized certainly my back pocket and uh, has allowed me to go again. So uh, pff, I'm all for the pause. Whenever there is another opportunity to, I'll be grabbing it. Certainly, I think what we have learned off the back of coronavirus thus far is that we cannot rely on one income stream as a human being. And certainly the vulnerability, I think a lot of people felt when the coronavirus first hit was that they actually woke up and realized, you know what? 
I don't really have anything. If my job doesn't exist, I do not have any income producing assets. And absolutely, I think this has been one of the critical lessons of wealth building that we as human beings need to go to work, exchange our time for money, but take that money and invest it in income producing assets to absolutely have something to help us when times get tough. And I've absolutely been here. I've been here myself. I've been in a situation where my wage has been obliterated. Obviously, running businesses for 20 years, there's been periods where I've been unable to pay myself. And using property and the distributions of profit from a property to fund a year's worth of my wages has been a saving grace in my world. And again, I think it just points to where we need to learn that not taking risk is actually more dangerous than taking risk. In that example, I was able to offload uh, a property. I didn't want to offload the property, but it paid me more than my annual wage in the sale, in the obviously money I made to go a year without not having um, any income. And, you know, I think that's a good way to look at your wealth. If you had to stop work for a year tomorrow because of no fault of your own and, uh, you know, was it wasn't some sort of injury or something, if you had to stop work tomorrow because the pandemic shut you down, do you have a plan B to create income? And if you do not have a plan B to create income, you need to, I don't know, reach out to me, reach out to my team, whatever. We've got to create you a plan B, right? Because I've used plan Bs several times. And i tell you what, they come in very, very, very handy when uh, the leaner times come into play. So obviously, uh, we have just seen, you know, a once in a generational transformation of wealth, the wealth effect has flowed, but that certainly doesn't mean it's over for many people. I think there's going to be continued rises in the marketplace, continue hotspots to invest in. And certainly when the counter cycle comes, that will create, again, more generational wealth if you know how to play the counter cycle. And I think a lot of people struggle with that part. Uh, a lot of people only like making money when the market's going up instead of looking at making money when the market is sort of flattening out or going down by virtue of asset building, using other people's money, creating really good deals using the counter cycle. So there's there's two ways to really look at it, but certainly I think the lessons learned from uh, thus this year have certainly uh, proven that you need more than one income stream to live life. Certainly when it comes to migration, I think we have learned that migration is not as big a impact on the real estate market than what we had always comprehended. Obviously, Australia is addicted to this thing called migration economics, where you bring in more migrants into the country to fundamentally uh, build a bigger economy. So that has not happened and the real estate market has not gone backwards so far. And uh, really, probably the impact from the lack of students has certainly uh, sort of, you know, 
made lackluster yields in some of our university cities, great cities like Sydney and Melbourne. But certainly the migration of real estate has, has not led to any challenges when it comes to, sorry, the migration of people not coming to the country has not led to a collapse in the real estate marketplace. Obviously, there are two groups that do not bring real estate to the market, first homeowners and migrants. And really, the manoeuvre that we saw in the pandemic thus far is to help millennials, local people, buy in the real estate market. And again, the amount of money being uh, transferred from millennials into the real estate market is unparalleled. We've seen huge amounts of first homeowners get into the marketplace. And again, with what has occurred, obviously, if there was migration on top of that, the market would have would have you know grown so much that it would have been it would have exploded. Um, it would have been way too much because there is no stock at the moment. The level of demand has been unprecedented. And if you were to layer in more people coming into the country, that would have absolutely tipped things way over the top when it came to affordability of real estate. So uh, it's probably a good thing. And I think from a social transformation level, parking a bit of immigration for the last couple of years, it's kind of been a really good thing because a lot of our cities were certainly getting a little bit out of control when it came to the movement of people and just allowing some of these infrastructure projects to catch up. It's just going to make an overwhelm, uh, a much nicer place to live in many of these cities. I know, for example, going to Melbourne, you know, 2019, just to go from, I don't know, Collingwood to Chapel Street and Paran was, mate, it'd take you 45 minutes. It was four kilometres. Um, obviously, just slowing down the migration effect at the moment allows cities like Melbourne and Sydney, where these typically new migrants come into, to just play a bit of catch up with the infrastructure. And uh, certainly from a social transformation point of view, I think at the moment, anyway, it's uh, less people moving around is incredibly nice for many people in society. And uh, I'll again, my dad, my dad catches the bus. He still works. He's 82. He loves going to work. I don't know why, but uh, he loves it. And, you know, he was telling me the other day that there was just so many people not moving around that the bus that he was waiting for pulled up and he said to the bus driver, mate, can I quickly run in and buy a long neck from the uh, bottle shop? And the bus driver said, sure, I'll wait for you. And he, five minutes later, he came back with his long neck um, and uh, got on the bus to go home to uh, have a party with my mum. Now, in what planet would that actually ever happen if uh, coronavirus had not come along? I don't think you would have seen a bus driver stop in Sydney the big uh, powerhouse of Sydney and do something like that since, I don't know, 1965. So certainly for my 82-year-old dad, he loves coronavirus. He's he's great for old people. There's, you're not getting knocked about. You're not having to um, jostle for position to move about. But certainly that social transformation of movement is a real thing. Obviously, the work from home movement is a thing. I personally hate working from home. I feel like uh, I... Uh, yeah, and missing out, you know, I've got that FOMO of uh, social connection. But certainly, I think what 
uh, we have learned from coronavirus is, again, these very humanistic suburbs are going to be very popular because of the work-from-home movement. In other words, suburbs which offer a bit of life, not just a dormitory suburb to live in. Uh, today, you know, what we did learn prior to coronavirus is there is a thing known as dormitory neighbourhoods. Basically, they were places which were so boring all you did was sleep there but you woke up and left there and got your social community connection by leaving those suburbs uh now people are stuck in those suburbs and realizing they are really boring and actually they do not get to go somewhere fun for the day so of course this is where we are seeing this transformation of people going, you know what, let's go and find a better suburb, better neighbourhood to live in and buy something if we can to, um, you know, nest in that particular neighbourhood. Certainly, I think when it comes to what we have learned through coronavirus and the pandemic thus far is we need to make the right decisions when it comes to investing. We do not want areas which are not resilient. We do not want areas which are, you know, lack a little bit of movement when it comes to live, work and play. We want to be on the right side of the wealth effect. We do not want to invest in where the middle class is being split into on the bad side of that. When we make decisions and the decisions we've made so far, if we have bought in a marketplace which is a bit rough and we take equity out of that, we're going to be servicing equity on a market which probably will contract, and then we're going to have to live with that decision. We want to make sure that we've invested in the A-grade pockets of town, A-grade cities, mission-fit neighbourhoods for the next phase of what this is. We've learned that Millennials are absolutely shopping in the market. Loner liver millennials, as well as startup family millennials. And that is certainly creating an awesome impact on the real estate marketplace. We've certainly seen the social transformation of work from home movement. We've seen industries which really you have to get off the bus if you're in those industries because not only do lockdowns affect you, but also the fact that you're uh, unable to invest in a very good investment uh, marketplace is a real threat to your economic well-being and the years you will retire. And I uh, certainly think what we have seen through coronavirus thus far is the resilience of our banking system, just how helpful they've been, along with that migrants certainly do not uh, impact the real estate market as much as we think they do when it comes to real estate. I certainly think we have learned that we do not want to rely on just one income. And I think the final thing we've learned when it comes to corona economics is that inflation and supply, day, supply chain disruption is a real thing. And uh, potentially that will mean, you know, creating more jobs around localized manufacturing and better logistics because the whole world at the moment uh, is struggling to move freight and to move the supply chain forward. And of course, a lot of that is affecting the time that real estate is, uh, it, the time it, it takes to create real estate.
So I think a little bit of looking over the horizon is there's going to be lack of stock which comes to the marketplace over the next couple of years, which is great. It's certainly going to keep real estate healthy. I think the cash rate will remain fairly low for a long time, particularly with the latest uh, Sydney lockdown. I don't think the Reserve Bank's going to move the cheese on that one anytime soon. Obviously, the economy was going really, really good for a while there, particularly when it came to the unemployment figures. I mean, we were close to 4%, which is the magic number for wage growth. Uh, obviously, lockdowns and things like that meddled with it. I think we're going to learn to live with these lockdowns. I think we have learned that lockdowns, uh, albeit you know, uh, nerve-wracking and, and certainly not fun at all, unless you've got an alcoholic dog, um, you know, we, we kind of learned from the first one what happened. So we're kind of used to it. We are battle-hardened. And uh, that is another lesson from this year within coronavirus. But overall, I think what we need to learn is we want mission fit real estate. And again, I've been there. I've wasted, I reckon, 10 years of my economic life investing in non-mission fit real estate economies where I was hunting out positive cash flow assets, which, you know, at the end of the day were just subpar degrade locations and when I look at the value of those properties now, I'm glad I moved them and moved into superior marketplaces. Don't ever forget real estate is about a monopoly board and how you control wealth on the monopoly board is sticking to really good assets for when you tap equity from them, you'll still want to keep them and that will help you through this long-term idea of wealth building with real estate. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investors today. I'm going to leave you with my quote, which I always forget. Um, I'm going to learn it soon. I've been quoted in a book. And so uh, I want to leave with a quote, uh, which I which I basically say, or have said, and the fact that I'm in a book makes me think, wow, I can't believe someone put me in their book quoting. This is what I said. I said, don't ever fear to fail, be inspired to succeed and so i'm gonna leave you on that note hey have fun thanks for tuning in to the urban property investor to never miss an episode make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on youtube and i would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family in between episodes you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.